I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Andy Rowe Show. Cade Metz is an expert on artificial intelligence and writer for The New York Times. You're going to hear how artificial intelligence is being used for you and against you every time you use Google or check your Facebook and Instagram. You and I are constantly feeding data into the tech giants and they're using it. I hope you enjoy the episode. Joining me now is technology expert on artificial intelligence, driverless cars, robotics, virtual reality, uh, all for the New York Times. He's also the author of a brand new book on the rise of artificial intelligence called Genius Makers. I've just finished reading it. It's a little bit of a thriller. It's a little bit of an informative read. And it's, a, it's something that you should all get your eyes on because everyone is affected in some way or another by artificial intelligence. Cade Metz, thank you very much for coming on the show. Very glad to be here. Thank you. Let's start with a lot of artificial intelligence. You're going to hear the word algorithm a lot. Now, I don't want to throw my listeners off that have no idea about tech and no idea what an algorithm is or how that works. But can you give us a gist of, well, just what it is? Yeah, just give us a gist of it. An algorithm is a piece of mathematics. Um, but let's let's focus on a particular kind of algorithm. I think that this will help inform the whole conversation, right? There's one idea at the middle of this book, and it's an idea that started in the 50s. And then by 2010, it really started to work. And it, it drives so much of what all of us do on a daily basis. Whenever you power up your iPhone and you ask Siri something, the reason Siri can understand the words that you say is this idea. Uh, the reason that Facebook can identify faces in the photos um, that you post the internet is because of this one idea. The reason that driverless cars, uh, which are under test here in California, where I am, and various other places around the world, the reason they can recognize pedestrians on the side of the street or, or stop sign is because of this one idea. It's called a neural network. And that can be an intimidating term in and of itself, right? It's it's called a neural network because it's supposed to mimic the brain. But let's think about it in different terms. A neural network is a piece of mathematics. And this mathematical system learns skills by analyzing data. And the best example I can give is you take thousands of cat photos from the internet and you feed these cat photos into this neural network and it analyzes them. It looks for the patterns that define what a cat looks like and it learns to recognize a cat. It's the same thing with Siri. It, it analyzes thousands of hours of spoken words. It recognizes the patterns in the words that you and I use, and that's how it learns to recognize the words. It's a, it's a fascinating concept um, that has implications not only with the technologies I mentioned, but so many other technologies I'm sure that we'll talk about. And it's all driven by data, isn't it? That the more data that you can get, the better your technology can be. Is that right? 
That is exactly right. And that's one of the reasons that it took you know, half a century for this idea to work. We didn't have enough data. It took the internet, you know, where we have so many photos that we post um, online. We have so many sounds that we post. There's so much text. All of that um, is, is the currency that these, these neural networks need. It's, it's, it's their lifeblood. So once we got to around 2010 and we had enough data uh, to make this work, it started to work. The one other thing you need though that we didn't have before is, is computer processing power. So you need the data and then you need these giant data centers really, you know, these uh, giant buildings filled with computers that can take in all that data and then can analyze it and look for all those patterns. That's how it works. Let's drill down to fully automated cars because that's something that a few of the tech companies are all trying to uh, produce, not just so that they can produce fully automated cars, but also because of the technology that they will find along the way to produce other things. Who's the closest to making that and who's involved? There, there are so many uh, very large companies, um, not only in the US, um, but in the UK, uh, in China involved in this. There's a big interest there. You're right. It's a path towards autonomous vehicles of all kinds, whether it's trucks or cars, but you're right. There's so much technology that goes into it that can be used in other ways. But one of the reasons I think this is a great example to focus on, I'm glad that you did, is that that neural network idea we talked about is essential to driverless cars. It's one of the reasons that they're powerful. Like I said, it's, it's how they recognize what's going on in the world around them. They can recognize a pedestrian or a street sign. But where a neural network is, is not that effective, where driverless cars still struggle and where we're still looking for new technologies is, is when the car encounters something new it hasn't seen before. And that's why when you walk out your front door, you don't see self-driving cars everywhere you turn, right? This was promised by now, mm. but the technology is not up to it yet. You talk about China being in quite a good place to deliver on that technology, though, don't you? Absolutely. And it goes back to your previous question, right? It's, it's in large part about the data. People um, are really bullish on China's uh, place in the world here because they have a huge population. If you have a huge population, you're going to produce more data. And the other thing you're going to do in the long run is you're going to produce more talented AI researchers. And that's another currency, right? It's about the talent needed to, to train these systems. Um, it is a real talent in a lot of ways. Um, and China, because of those two reasons, you know, the talent, you know, which they're, which they're very much uh, concentrated on developing and then the data can help them uh, in the long run. Is that why there's the perception that China is overtaking the rest of the world with technology? Right. Um, and, you know, it, it's an interesting situation. It's very different than kind of the arms races of the past, right? The way it would work often in the past is say the U.S. wanted to build its technology and keep it secret and make sure it wasn't exported. We're in a different world now. One of the fascinating things is that a lot of the people in my book, right, these these few people who believed in this one idea over the decades were academics. And that meant they shared their ideas, they published them. And when this idea started to work and they moved into the biggest companies on earth, Google and Facebook and Amazon, 
they brought that ethos with them. And what that meant was, is that even these big companies started to publish all, all their important research in this area. And that has big geopolitical implications. You know, that means that all the ideas are available to everyone in the world, including China. The currency, like I said, is the town and the data and not necessarily those latest developments. Everyone has you know, the latest technology. It's about how they can develop it. So we need to think about this a little differently, right? It's not about trying to control exports. It's not about making sure that borders are closed to Chinese researchers because we're worried about espionage. We need to think about this differently. You know, the irony is we, as the U.S., needs immigrant researchers. We actually need Chinese researchers who are, who are you know, a, a big important part of this field. It actually helps the U.S. to have talent from overseas. And if we shut down that talent, we're shooting ourselves in the foot. So it's a, it's, a, it's a really complicated situation that we haven't really faced before, you know, as a planet. I guess China has a little bit of an advantage sometimes as well because when it comes to accessing people's data, the government's involved with almost helping that happen, where as if you look at other countries, say the UK, for example, wasn't there an incidence where they were trying to build a, a medical device or artificial intelligence, but they weren't able to get the data because it was blocked by GDPR. It's interesting because it's not just about how close the government is to industry in China. It's about privacy norms, right? The privacy norms are different. There's a different view of privacy in China than in the UK and, and in the US. And that can give them an advantage when it comes to building the technology, because as we discussed, it is all about collecting the data. It's about volume of data. And if you have things like GDPR, the privacy uh, laws um, in Europe, you know, that can restrict how much data you have access to. And that's great for personal privacy, but it can hurt the development of this type of technology. When it comes to the leading tech firms, how deep do they go on, you know, as far as, yeah, I've got every social media I think there is, uh, even joined up Clubhouse the other day. How, how deep do they go as far as the amount of information they keep on a person? You know, it's pretty deep. It's amazing how, particularly during this time, during this pandemic, you realize how much you rely on, on all these services. And what you're really doing is you're giving over your data. It's just, it's almost how you have to live nowadays. Now, because of some pushback over the years, there are limits to it. Uh, many of these companies will delete uh, the data after a certain time period. But that doesn't always happen. We don't always read those pro long privacy statements we have to approve before we start using a service. Mm. I mean, what's really happening is we're giving over, over so much data on a daily basis, um, and we almost have to. I think we as a society need, need, to, need to think about that more. And that's why GDPR was so interesting, right? It was a real effort to, to push back against that. Let's, let's just take one firm, for example, let's say Facebook for a layman like how are they using that data like what are they what are they doing with it and how are they using that data well a good a good example is the photos you post to the service that can be used to train these image recognition services another good example are the chat client you might use through facebook they have one called messenger right where mm. you can chat with someone online and have a conversation that becomes a way to train one of these neural networks to carry on a conversation and that's a real big area of interest right now is taking texts like that from the internet, 
using it to train these neural networks to do all sorts of tasks involving language. And this is not just conversation, but it's, it's generating all sorts of other language. We now have these systems, essentially enormous neural networks that can write their own tweets and write their own blog posts, write their own articles. And it is, you know, it's, it's jaw-dropping how accurate it is. I mean, right down to the punctuation. Mm. And it's not perfect yet. Uh, the way I describe these, these systems, they're called universal language models. And there's one, you know, in the news now with, you know, one of those typical tech world names, it's called GPT-3, which doesn't exactly roll off the tongue, but it's <laughs> enormously important. It trains on, I mean, literally thousands of digital books, thousands of Wikipedia articles, um, and all sorts of other stuff post the internet. And it learns how we as humans piece language together. And once it's trained, and it trains over months, analyzing all this data, it can do what I said. It can, it can generate an article or a blog post. But there are limitations. If you, if you spin the wheel 10 times, right? if you ask it for 10 speeches in the voice of Donald Trump, it will give you five that are perfect in his voice. It'll give you five that are not and that really, really aren't up to snuff. So there, it's still being developed. Um, there's still a lot of questions about it. But that's, that's how these companies think, right? That data can be applied to these technologies. That Trump thing you were talking about, because didn't they make videos also of Obama speaking? And, and it looked 100%. Absolutely. And this, this is another, this is a, a really big concern, I think, in the long term, okay? So we've talked about neural networks and, and you know, they train to you know, recognize a cat or to recognize a sound, all right? That's, that's a, those are recognition tasks. If you turn it upside down, so to speak, it can generate those things. It can use the patterns that it has learned about how those things are built and it can build them itself. So that means it can create its own images and create its own text, as I talked about. So what that means is we're moving towards a world where machines can create enormous amounts of disinformation, right? Photos and videos and text that looks like the real thing. And for anyone who's lived over the past four years, you know what a problem disinformation has already been. That's when it's mostly created by humans. What happens when we enter this world where machines can create that so easily and so cheaply. We're really going to have to change the way we think about what we see. It wasn't there a porn site that was affected by those videos? You're exactly right. So that, that was sort of ground zero for what they called deep fakes. They call them deep fakes. So, you know, another name for neur neural network is, is deep learning, they call it. And so these deep fakes are just what I described. They're they're videos that are created by machines. And what they would do is they would create these videos that would say, put a celebrity's face um, into a porn video, right? Onto the body of someone in a porn video. And this became a thing. Um, they were eventually banned on Twitter, even, even on porn services, they were banned because they're so misleading. But this is a technology that continues to progress. And it gets easier and easier and cheaper and cheaper to do this. Just recently, there was a story about a woman here in the States who made these deep fakes, right? She's not a technologist. She made these deep fakes of girls who were on her daughter's cheerleading team, right? And sent them to people, you know, as, as, you know, as a kind of 
you know, strange and, and unusual and technological effort to, you know, undermine rivals, right? Uh, th that's what we're heading towards is where it just becomes easy for anyone to do this kind of thing. So the mother made porn videos, fake porn videos out of her daughter's cheerleading squad and used that to gain an advantage over his, her rivals. Out of spite, exactly. Wow. Didn't Google have some issues around that facial identification thing and was identifying people incorrectly as well? Right. So another big issue here is bias in these systems, right? Like I said, the way it works is you, you find your data and you feed that into the system and it learns from the data. We all have bias, right? We as humans are flawed. You and I as white men, we have a certain view of the world and we're going to choose certain data and that's informed by our view of the world. And what people started to realize as these systems were developed was that because it was mostly white men building the systems, they were often biased against women and people of color because there weren't enough women represented in the data. There weren't enough um, people of color in the data. You're seeing this with text as well. There's systems I talk about that train on all that internet text. The internet, for anyone who's used it, is biased often against women and people of color and others, right? Uh, you know, these systems will learn to associate computer programmers with the pronoun he and not she. They'll associate women with certain professions. They will spew hate speech in some cases because we all know there's so much hate speech on the internet, right? So... These systems really learn from our flaws. Um, and then sometimes we don't realize, you know, where it has learned in those ways. We don't see it until it's already out into the world. That's a really big concern right now. And what was the story where that actually happened? And it was something was tweeted, wasn't it? There's so many examples. Like the, the, the one really famous example, and it's hard to believe now that it was six years ago, right? This should have been a real wake-up call. This is a character in my book. Um, his name is Jackie Alsinay, and he was a 22-year-old software engineer living in Brooklyn, New York. And uh, he got sent a link to a new version of the Google Photos app, which could, which could do this. It could recognize objects in images. And he had posted photos of a friend of his at a concert in nearby Prospect Park in Brooklyn. And his friend um, was Black. And Google Photos identified his friend as a gorilla. And because of this problem, right? It was a problem in the data. They had trained a neural network to recognize gorillas without realizing it would have these, these egregious side effects. And so he tweeted it. What this shows is how difficult it is to fix the problem. You know, to this day, Google does not have a gorillas category because they, they just can't get it to work the way they want it to work, right? There's this problem in the data. And because of these, the way these machines learn, it really is about the data. It's not, it's not simple when it comes mm. to changing that. And often you have to you know, start all over. Jackie, um, this you know, Brooklyn software engineer has a great analogy for it. Like he, he, as a software engineer, he understands this and he compares it to making lasagna right? Where, you know, you put an ingredient in, you put another ingredient in, and if you've made a mistake, you can't get, get one ingredient out, right? You, you know, the ricotta is mixed in with everything else. So you can't take that mistake out and you've got to start over and you've got to say, all right, let's get new data. And sometimes that doesn't work. And sometimes you never find the right mix of data. 
Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Looking at one of the things that is talked about quite a bit is growth psychology. Do you know much about that where engineers develop software to, to keep you engaged? Do you, do you know much about that area? Absolutely. Right. And that's, that's fundamental to a lot of the, you know, a lot of these services built by these giant tech companies, you know, they're, they were built um, to keep you engaged. And sometimes the way these things work is that it's the controversial stuff, right? It's, it's the violence and other things that, that do keep you engaged. You know, you see this in, you know, we talk about, um, you know, disinformation, you know, the, here in the US, we have what's called QAnon, which is basically this, you know, group of conspiracy theorists. And what you find is that sharing that types of information, these conspiracy theories, which are not true, is something that attracts people's attention. It's what people want in a way. And um, certainly the way these services work is they want to give people what they want, right? It's built so that it's, it's pushing for things that will, that will grab the attention, as you said. That's why the disinformation piece is so concerning, right? If you had the ability to, for machines to create that inf- this information, that's one thing. When you combine it with these global social networks that can get that disinformation out to so many people, and there's this phenomenon where it can really grab not only you know the attention of, of a few people, but lots and lots of people so mm-hmm. quickly. It's the combination of those two that are that's dangerous. Do you have opinions on who you think is ethical and who you think's not ethical as far as the big companies go? Well, it's interesting, you know, we like to think in terms of absolutes, right? You know, who's good and who's bad, you know, who's liberal, who's conservative you know, which idea is right and which are wrong. But what I have found in, in covering this stuff over the years and, and writing this book is that, you know, it's, it's more complicated than that. One example I like to give is Google started working uh, with the Department of Defense, the military here in the U.S., and they applied these ideas to this project. So that image recognition idea, that not only is it essential to self-driving cars, it's essential to autonomous weapons, right? Uh, reconnaissance in the military or surveillance, right? The ability to see what's going on around you. You take that same thing that's working on a self-driving car, you put it on a self-flying drone, right? And you put a weapon on that drone. And Google started working on this project um, with the DOD where it was taking that technology and use it to identify objects in drone footage. So buildings and cars and even people. 
And that can be used for surveillance and reconnaissance. It can also be used on the battlefield, right, to identify targets. And a lot of people at Google were really upset by this, and they ended up protesting the, the project. A lot of people at Google thought exactly the opposite. They thought this is what had to happen. The AI was inside Google. They were American citizens. You know, what had to happen was Google working with the military. This technology is, you know, is being shared globally. Uh, so our rivals are going to build this. EOD certainly wants it, and they're going to find a way to build it. Um, the interesting situation we're in now is that the talent to build this and the data is inside these big companies, right? And they're not necessarily military companies. They're not like military contractors who worked with the DOD in the past, Department of Defense in the past. They're Google and Microsoft and Amazon, right? And so there's this big effort on the side of the military to, to work with those giant companies, which you might not expect. And certainly employees at those companies didn't expect it, right? Suddenly, Amazon and Microsoft and Google are important defense contractors. Looking at the political side of it again, political polarization is a big issue at the moment. Is that down to these tech companies and you know the the algorithms that you talk about? Because you know, you if you start clicking on a certain link, you're going to get more information on that link, right? Is there a responsibility or is there something being addressed in that area by the tech companies when it comes to political polarization? Because what you see in the news and what you hear, the left is so much further left and the right is so much further right than what it has been in, in recent years. And a lot of that is down to those algorithms and people getting the information that they that they want. Isn't is that sort of along the lines of how these algorithms work? Is that how you read it as well? Well, I think that certainly these social networks and the way they work are, are a big part of that. I think there are other other forces as well that have contributed to that, right? Um, in the US where I live, it's not only about the social networks, it's about the way that the media has worked for so long and that we have these very polarizing television stations and radio stations. And this has been built up, you know, for two or three decades now, right? There are a lot of forces that are driving us apart, but I think that certainly the social networks are part of that right it, we do we do tend to believe what those around us believe right i'm fascinated and this comes up in the book how ideas spread from person to person right the people you tend to believe what the people beside you believe and now we live in this world where there's so many more people beside you so to speak they talk about these filter bubbles on facebook and other social networks right you you develop this bubble of people around you and you tend to pick up their, their beliefs, uh, however extreme. Mm. And that's certainly part of what's going on. How does that work on the social media? Like for someone that doesn't see how it's working, like how, for, for a layman, like how, how right. does that actually come about? Well, it's, it's, it comes about because of human nature, right? We tend to group into areas that we all agree on, right? Um, you tend to friend, you know, is the term on Facebook, you tend to friend the people um, who are who are like you, and you tend to keep a distance from the people are not who are not right. Um, as you see things pop up in your Facebook feed, and there are things that you don't like, um, you're less likely to follow that person right on Twitter or friend them on Facebook. And so then you, you just sort of naturally get these bubbles 
which are separated from from each other and where these you know very different views get developed looking at the the growth of some of these social media platforms there's a thought that some of them are becoming more powerful than nation states do you have any thoughts on on that and of you know where that's heading well you know i i think that it's definitely heading in that direction right sometimes you have to look at companies like google a company like that has interests all over the globe um, and in many ways they're going to behave uh, not like an American company, but like a global company. And you're right. At the same time, their power is is enormous. Um, so you almost have to think about them in those terms. That it's not as a company um, or as an American company, but as something that's bigger than that. Um, and it's something it's something that does have its own aims, separate from where it's headquartered. And you know as these technologies become more and more powerful. And certainly as their influence grows across the globe, um, that's something we're going to have to think about more and more. Does it just come down to regulation from the government? Well, yes, sometimes, but also there are cases where you have to think about regulation globally, right? If you have a problem in the U.S. with something, you can regulate it. But because of this global phenomenon we've talked about, the fact that technology is available to everyone, your rival is just going to do that. You know, autonomous weapons is a great example. You put your foot down here in the U.S. and say, we are not going to build autonomous weapons, but then your rivals are going to build them. Mm. Um, so if you're going to regulate something like that, you're going to have to do it globally, right? You're going to have to have a ban on autonomous weapons uh, and define what that means uh, globally and not country by country. When it comes to the people that are making this in the tech um, companies, what does that look like? Because a lot of people will just see, oh, Facebook's making this or Google's making this. Is it is it people in universities that are making the technology? How does that whole software development start? And and who's who's driving? Is it like a small arm? Are there, are there different groups within the Facebook or Google that are that are driving the technologies? Um, it is different different groups, um, and a lot of times, particularly in this area of AI. Um, a lot of these researchers and computer scientists do come from academia, and that's been a real phenomenon uh, recently. Uh, a lot of times they will maintain their professorships in, in academia, and that's, that's become more and more common. That's certainly the way a lot of these, they call them artificial intelligence labs, work at these companies. They're kind of self-contained, and they're going to work on these ideas that, that we've been talking about, often in tandem with academia. And then what they build gets pushed out into so many different other teams at the company, right? So the, to the self-driving car team, to a team that's doing um, other types of robotics, to the team that's doing image recognition and photos, or to the team that's building the digital assistant that recognizes your voice and, um, uh, and responds to it. Because there's a company in London, is it DeepMind? That's right. That's a very, very important uh, AI lab. They started out as an independent lab founded by three people in London, one guy from New Zealand, two others born in London. They've become over the past decade an incredibly important player in this area. But about three or four years into, into their run, right, they were only three or four years old when they were acquired by Google. The, the talent in this area became so valuable. Um, there were only a few people on earth who worked on this idea of a neural network. 
And the big company snaps all those people up, paying them millions of dollars a year. Really? So, so how far, what, what would they go to? Like, what would they have been getting paid? And then all of a sudden Google comes along. What, what are they getting paid? Well, you know, the way, the way that my book begins, it's with this, you know, this guy named Jeffrey Hinton, who was born in London and he ends up, um, he ends up in Canada and he's at the forefront of this idea of a neural network, right? He struggled for decades to get this to work. This idea starts to work in 2012. He and his two students released this paper that shows that it can work with image recognition, as we talked about, that it can recognize cars and flowers um, and even people in, in digital photos. He not only realizes the technological importance of this, he realizes the economic importance of it. And he, he does an unusual thing. And I can't think of another, another example of this. And I've spent years thinking about it and writing about it. He decides to auction his services off to the highest bidder. And, you know, in 2012, when he's in this hotel room in Lake Tahoe, he, he runs this auction with some of the biggest companies on earth, Google and Microsoft and Baidu, which is in China. So over the course of several days, like the price just keeps going higher and higher and higher. And so he stops it at $44 million um, for, for, for three people. And that sort of set the price. Um, for the whole industry, right? $44 million for three people. And so, you know, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about millions of dollars a year wow. in, in salary and in stock. And, and you see this, you know, play out across the industry. So what happens is, is DeepMind, that lab in London, has a lot of this talent, this important talent. They've seen this happening as well. And they, and they have brought a lot of people into the fold. But what they realize is, they can't, they can't hold on to that talent for much longer because of the deep pockets of all these giant companies. Mm. And they pretty much realize they have to sell themselves uh, to, a, to another company. And Facebook was interested, but they end up selling to Google for $650 million. Wow. Um, How many people were working there? It, it was about 40 or 50 at the time. Goodness me. Right, and this is this is mostly just a talent acquisition. It wasn't about like acquiring technology. It's about acquiring talent. DeepMind is is incredibly important to this area uh, in a lot of ways. But yes, they they are part of the same parent company as Google, which is now called Alphabet, and and that has come with its own complications. Right, they've run into those economic forces those corporate forces we talked about at google just like just like others because some of those companies when they get acquired don't they make it so that in the contract they stipulate they can't work on military stuff or that's one of the reasons deep mind is so interesting and it's an example of this idealism that you saw in the field in academia they did not want their technology to be used for military purposes and they actually put that into their contract with Google. And then a few years later, there's Google, you know, applying AI to the military, as we talked about, right? And they, and they were part of the clash at the company. They did not want that to happen. Well, let's start to wrap things up with a top three list. What are your top three things that you think that people should be aware of when it comes to artificial intelligence that maybe they're not aware of? One is that disinformation problem I talked about. That's super important. Two is that bias issue. That's the other thing that, that we're dealing with at the moment. And then, you know, three is, is, 
is the robotics issue, and that ties into the military stuff. One of the ways where these ideas are really uh, improving things is in the robotics field. And that's not just driverless cars, it's robotics inside warehouses and manufacturing plants. Because of these systems that can learn tasks, robots are getting better and better and better at, at performing all sorts of tasks, whether it's you know, driving a car or sorting through all the stuff that comes into you know, an Amazon warehouse or a FedEx warehouse, and it has to be sorted and distributed and um, shipped out uh, to various other places. Right now, people do most of that, but machines are starting to do that as well. Uh, and that's another you know, big area of progress. So if people that are in that industry should be thinking about trying to get into a different industry or retrain or get into another line, or, or should governments be anticipating that? Well, it's again, it's more complicated than that. You know, if you think about the moment we're living through, like we've become more and more dependent on those warehouses. Uh, you know, we, we're, we're becoming more and more dependent on all this stuff being shipped to us. Mm. And part of the issue is that the Amazons and the FedEx, FedExes of the world, they can't find the labor they need to do all that, right? So in, in some ways, those robots are really needed and it, they're not necessarily going to replace jobs, right? Um, there's a real demand for it for other reasons. Um, so in the long term, we're going to see lots of jobs displaced, but that doesn't mean that we're going to have this like cataclysmic moment where all the jobs go away mm. and everyone's out of work, right? Mm. It, you know, at this point, at least, it's going to be gradual, like, like it has been you know, for decades and centuries um, in the past. And the other two points that you, you made, the, the biased one, how do people be aware of that and how do people try and almost combat it um, on a personal level? Well, on a personal level, it's hard, right? And what we do need to do is think about regulations here. Um, as we talked about, uh, we need to think about diversifying the workforces, uh, make sure there's, there's a, a diverse uh, collection of people working on this and thinking about this. Um, we need to deal with this as a society, right? As individuals, it's hard. Uh, we need to think about it inside these companies, outside these companies, inside government, certainly. And the other one was misinformation. How do people be aware of that and how do they combat that? I think, you know, when, when you go online, you really have to develop a skepticism, right? We, you have to bring that skepticism today, certainly. Uh, we've seen the problem with misinformation, but as time goes on, your level of skepticism is going to have to, it's going to have to rise, right? It's going to become a, an increasingly large problem. We all need to realize that. We all need to think twice about what we're looking at and what we're clicking on. Okay, Mitz, thank you very much for coming on the show. Absolutely. It was fun. Thank you. And thank you very much for listening. If you'd like to learn more about the history and development of artificial intelligence, Cade's book, Genius Makers, is out now. And if you like this interview, we'd love it if you left us a review and make sure you give us a share on social media as well. Thanks again for listening.